Mr. Wegman, we were supposed to be together yesterday. You were ready to be with me yesterday. And then I knew when I looked up, and it was 5 till 5 yesterday, and the press conference that you were going to call me after had not even begun. And my my prowess as a leading broadcaster inside my head, I went, uh-oh. <laughs> so, so that's how that went. So, But you were there for the press conference. First of all, what was your general takeaway on this press conference? Well, beyond the fact that it took uh, much longer than anticipated, this was Joe Biden and Zelensky, the president of the United States and Ukraine, right. trying to come together at a moment when aid for that ally is up in the air. Right now, Republicans, uh, they have made an argument, which is essentially if the United States is going to send hundreds of millions of dollars more in aid for Ukraine to defend their own borders, Republicans want to see significant reforms to defend our own. That's the current impasse right now. The White House has argued that Republicans are being uh, extreme, that they are being radical. But the one thing that uh, President Biden cannot deny is that right now Republicans control the purse strings and they are very hesitant to greenlight more funding for this conflict at a moment when it has really devolved into trench warfare. Is it the general stand right now? What's what's the dollar amount that supposedly we have gifted to Ukraine over the last two and a half years? Is it a hundred plus billion? Yeah, there there are different estimates because you have to add up not just the appropriations from Congress, but also some of the uh, aid that the administration has been able to send over on their own. But uh, roughly, that's around $100 billion. Now, not all of that is for security assistance. It's not all guns and ammo and artillery shells. Some of it is also uh, aid to keep the Ukrainian economy afloat. Some of it is also aid to keep their, their government operating. But one of the things that we have seen change is that previously, both Republicans and Democrats were willing to uh, welcome uh, President Zelensky as if he was almost a Churchillian-like figure, as if right. he was the one holding back um, this, this, this wave of totalitarianism. Since the last Ukrainian offensive, though, um, you have a lot more Republicans asking, what are we getting for our money? Certainly, uh, a lot of Russians have been defeated. There are a lot of um, you know, downgrades in the Russian military's capacity to wage war. Um, there's also other estimates, however, that, uh, you know, Russia has been able to regain its strength. And one of the things that is really fueling GOP skepticism is the admission from some of Zelensky's own military advisors that this conflict has devolved into a stalemate, that there isn't going to be a massive breakthrough. And so now, the uh, argument over funding for Ukraine has turned into a pretty basic, um, you know, fact-finding mission. And you have Speaker Johnson asking, what is the clear, articulable strategy here? What is it that Zelensky and Biden hope this thing will end with? You know, what is the off-ramp? What is the uh, definition of victory? And thus far, the administration, uh, their response to those types of questions when I've asked and when others have asked during the earlier stages of the conflict is, well, 
nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. And also that the United States is with Ukraine as long as it takes. But right now, there's no sign of a early and decisive uh, breakout. Instead, um, you know, we've got a land war in Europe and it uh, you know, could stretch on not just for more months, but for many more years. You know, when, when you when you watch Russia and every time I watch what it is that they have done, want to do, talk about doing in Ukraine, it feels very much to me like the conflict that they had for a decade with Afghanistan. And basically, Russia pulled out of that and, you know, put their legs back underneath themselves and waddled back to Russia with really nothing to show for it. Mm-hmm. And then we came in like, OK, we're going to show you how this is done. And we didn't do that well either. In fact, you know, if you take the billions of dollars of equipment and intellect that we left in Afghanistan when we did our drastic, fast pullout, I don't see where we helped ourselves a whole lot there. So I would say that the table, as far as Russia and the United States in these foreign conflicts, we're both not doing very well. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the argument from the administration is that you should take uh, Russian President Putin at his word, that he is eager to expand Russia to its previous glory, that this is not a man who would be um, satisfied just with a few hundred miles of territory gained in Ukraine, but that he would then uh, move to perhaps threaten other NATO allies. And so the the sort of um, quick and dirty from a pragmatic standpoint is that by standing with Ukraine, who is an ally, not yet a NATO member, the United States and a Western coalition can downgrade the Russian military and prevent uh, the possibility of the United States getting into open conflict with Russia if they were to move against um, you know, Poland or some other NATO member. The thing is, um, there's a hubris to assume that these wars are going to go exactly as planned. And I think that your um, lesson there about Afghanistan is, is pretty uh, is pretty prescient here, even if it's not a you know one to one comparison, because there was a great plan on paper for Afghanistan. Twenty years later, we right. could see that it, it didn't work out. And right now, with, with Ukraine, um, we see the United States being drawn further and further into the conflict. And so, despite you know the the, um, the careful designs of you know the White House or others in the West. Uh, this is war. It is unpredictable. We do not know what is going to happen next. And the skepticism of some Republicans is that this could lead us into a, uh, you know, a, a much more ugly conflict. In fact, you even have former President Trump out there campaigning right now with his usual bombast, promising that he will keep the United States out of a World War III situation. Yeah. Do, do you... <sighs> Let's let's do a side by side comparison here, Philip. This is unfair to you. I didn't tell you we were going to do this, um, and, and and I'm I'm pretty sure that you know that politically, and governmentally, and constitutionally, I am not an expert. Okay, so I come at this kind of like a political hack. But when I look at the conflict of Afghanistan and everything that happened there, and now you've got Ukraine, and now you have Israel. The 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 Ukrainian conflict to me is more a way to blacken the eye of Russia. It's more who we are against with Ukraine to kick Putin back where he belongs. With Israel, 
it's they are our friend. If we've ever had a friend in the Middle East, it's Israel. And we better find ways to keep standing with them because if we don't, we'll somewhere along the way end up paying the price. Am I making this too simplistic? I don't think so. Some of the experts that I'm talking to um, who are skeptical of the administration's approach here, they point to the conflict in Europe as well as the Middle East, and they say, um, look at how the United States has struggled to maintain that arsenal of democracy status. I mean, earlier in the year, the United States sent cluster bomb munitions to Ukraine. The only reason you send that type of artillery shell um, with its high likelihood of actually harming civilians later on is if you're unable to um, manufacture normal artillery shells. Uh, the United States was scraping the, the bottom of the barrel just to keep Ukraine supplied with the um, not just the high-tech uh, munitions, but some of these pretty you know basic munitions that we've been using for, for some time now. And so the fear is that if the United States is stretched thin, trying to stand with our Ukrainian ally at a time that we're also stretched thin with aircraft carriers in the Middle East to try and make certain that um, no uh, other foreign powers try to expand the war in Gaza, that they don't try to attack Israel, that, oh, the actual existential threat to the United States, China, uh, could perhaps move and take advantage of this chaos, uh, catching us when, when we are uh, unprepared. Well, when you get China, and they're already kissing up to Iran, and Iran, I don't care what anybody says, Iran, in several ways, with all of their tentacles they've got out there, Iran is behind almost everything that's trying to make a pattern against Israel right now. Iran hates Israel. And if you don't believe me, just wait, because if they get on top of Israel, the next person they hate is us. So there'll be no end to it. Russia so wants to be in bed with Iran, but so does China. I get a feeling, and I might be all wet here, Philip, I get a feeling that Russia somehow has the upper leg in getting into bed with Iran than China does. And I think maybe it's because, I think maybe the, the leaders of Iran fear China more than they fear Russia. So one of the things that has happened as a result of these two conflicts is that we have seen different countries fall into categories that are not necessarily surprising, uh, but are important to pay attention to. You have China, Iran, Russia, North Korea, some of these countries that are hostile to the West, working very closely with one another. Right now, when the European Union cannot even meet its own obligations when it comes to supplying uh, military aid to Ukraine, the North Koreans are working overtime to send artillery shells to Russia. Also, uh, ahead of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you had Vladimir Putin pulling aside Chinese President Xi at the Winter Olympics. Uh, the two of them huddling together. Iran has been more than happy to flout uh, sanctions on on Russia. So you sort of have all of these countries um, coming closer together. And what is interesting about this is that ahead of uh, a potential invasion of Ukraine, the administration was warning Russia, if you invade Ukraine, you will draw closer to China. You will become, um, I, I believe, Jake Sullivan, the president's national security advisor, during one of these briefings, told me that um, Putin would become Xi's tethered goat. Well, they are not, um, they're not put off by that. Yeah. Uh, you clearly see Russia, Iran, some of these other powers 
betting on China rather than the United States. And it's not just those countries that are traditionally hostile to the United States. You have other smaller countries, um, you know, from uh, you know the Middle East to Africa to even you know countries like Montenegro betting on China rather than the West. And as a result of these conflicts, you know, you you see how quickly fleeting the unipolar moment was when the United States was the big kid on the block at the end of the Cold War, you know, the, the only uh, kid uh, laying out the rules. That moment is over. Do you, 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 you mentioned um, you know, the one person that there that's the spokesperson for the president. Do you trust him? <laughs> I don't trust anybody, Pat. <laughs> Including Pat Miller. Write that down, oh, folks. No, that I, was very I trust you. No, but I mean, when you sometimes when when I, when we get a wide shot of the press room, and I see you, and sometimes I see your twin from Fox, uh, but when you see the various people that are there in the room, sometimes you can almost see whether it's Sullivan or uh, Corinne Jean Pierre or whoever it is. Sometimes they look at it, and you guys are like, "Are you ever going to get around to giving us a straight answer that that means something?" Because it doesn't mean anything. Well, first of all, I'm not going to let you besmirch Peter Ducey of Fox News. He's a very handsome fellow. <laughs> um, look, I think that there is a there is supposed to be a healthy skepticism, even an antagonism uh, between the press and people in power. Sometimes you have outlets who, for whatever reason, um, maybe it is their ideological bias, or perhaps they're trying to play a long game where they pull punches here or there to set up um, sourcing and opportunities later. You know, maybe they are a little softer on the administration. This happens in both Republican and Democratic administrations. Um, you know, my media criticism is, is pretty uh, basic, and that is I'm professionally jealous of, of every other reporter who gets a better story than me. Um, I, I won't question too much of their motives, but look, it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter whether they're a Republican or a Democrat. The job is pretty simple. You hold their feet to the fire and you do your best to figure out what was done in the dark and bring it into the light. Yeah. Um, sometimes you're not going to be able to do that during a press conference. Uh, sometimes it requires additional extra steps. But um, Sometimes you know, when you're doing that, do you feel like you're sitting there saying to yourself, okay, I'm stepping out. I'm getting ready to walk on hot coals here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think that there's an understanding, um, certainly with this administration, and, and to their credit, they're willing to take tough questions. Um, I, I can't remember the last time I tossed uh, this administration a softball, but, um, you know, they're, they're willing to take tough questions. And, um, you know, so long as they're asked politely. And, uh, you know, I, 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 that is to their credit. And that's uh, as far as I'll go in praising the in praising any politician, Republican or Democrat. I ask you this because I have great respect for you, okay? These are, I'm going to ask you like three quick questions. You just give me your first off-the-cuff off the answer. I'm not holding you to it. I'm just trying to garner things in my, whole, in my own mind, okay? Republican Party, Donald Trump, candidate next year, yes or no? In all likelihood, yes. Okay. Democrat Party, Joe Biden, yes or no? Yes. Uh, with the caveat that father time is relentless and could potentially throw a wrench uh, into even the best light plans. Okay. And so if, if it's not Biden, then who is it, is it going to be the governor of California? It would be um, a knife fight. It would be a absolute throwdown struggle 
to uh, remove Vice President Harris from the top of the ticket. Uh, she's in line, has taken slings and arrows. Um, the expectation is that it would be uh, her nomination. But, um, you know, we've seen from California Governor Gavin Newsom that, that he sort of wait, waited in the wings, but um, has, has no plan to challenge Biden. I think that it would necessarily be Harris. And look, you know, you and I don't want to talk about this, but the fact of the matter is President Biden is 81 years old. Right. And Donald Trump, by the way, he's 77. So right. these are factors that you can't ignore. Well, in June, I turned 70. And I will tell you, with the stuff I'm going through, I told Kim the other day, I have no business being president of the United States. And I'm 10 and years younger than these guys. So, so I'm, I'm voting for you. So <laughs> <laughs> right. hey, Philip, get it back home. You and I got to go to dinner. Sounds like a plan. All right. I, th- I appreciate you, my friend. Have a great day. Thank you, sir. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Philip Wegman from Real Clear Politics. Podcasts by Federated Media.